All right, welcome everybody to episode 30, Nobel Conversation. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yosef? Hey, man, I'm feeling great. I recovered from that cold from last time. Oh, yeah, you don't sound as crispy, man. That feels good, huh? Yeah, no more of that Ebola, man. (laughs) Yeah, get that Ebola out. (laughs) Cough it out. Get it out. Yeah, man. Speaking of which, that's still in the news a little bit. I, ho- I hope it goes bit, away. Geez. Yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, a lot. so uh, that's that's a nice title. Maybe we could ask uh, our guest today about that. You're going to introduce who's our yeah, guest today? Yeah, so our guest uh, today, and it's actually, this is the one where it was you know, truly pre-recorded because it was a live interview. Dr. Dr. Harold Varmus, who is a Nobel Prize winner, uh, who's now the director of the National Cancer Institute. He was the director of National Institute of Health. Uh, he won the Nobel uh, for discovering retroviral oncogenes. Kind of a big deal, right, Yost? Yeah. Um, but he has tremendous, tremendous experience on a lot of levels, and particularly admin. I mean, when you run the NIH, you know, you're and you're one of three people that Obama goes to for advice on science. You know, I'd say you know what's going down. So we we got him. He was in Albany, giving a lecture, and I kind of. Got him. I roped him in to do a do a, a do a little interview. It was a quick interview, but uh, we we try to ask some some good questions, and we'll uh, we'll get you guys there in a, 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 towards the end of the show. I yeah, thought it was do, interesting. Do you remember his days at MSK when we were there? He, I, I remember two things. I always noticed he he'd always walk around with a backpack. Like, and he always he rode a bike everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he played in a jazz band, which meant we always had nice jazz uh, parties at the Christmas holiday party. I always just see him tooling around town on his bike, like parking it, just like a student and getting out. For everyone, he was the he was the uh, president of, or director. I don't know what it was of, of Memorial yeah. Sloan Kettering yeah. Cancer Center when both Joseph and I were there. So. Uh, uh, so it's kind of cool to have him back or just see him strolling around on his bike and you would realize like, who's this clown? Like, oh, wait a minute. That's a Nobel Prize winning yeah, president of yeah. the place. <laughs> yeah, you don't normally see professors and big shots walking around with just a backpack. You know, like No, a no, not skill. at all. But yeah. he's a, he was really nice to take some time and do that interview because at, at that event, everyone wanted to talk to him and he broke free to come talk to the Stem Cell Podcast. So um, let's see. Yo, uh, so everyone, we were talking about T-shirts. The T-shirts are now ready for purchase. So the deal is, you guys go out and buy a shirt, and a good amount of the proceeds come to the show and help us to run the show. Uh, and it, it's a really cool um, shirt. I mean, Yosef was really, really adamant that we have the guy designing the shirt really integrate our logo and, and, a, and a kind of a stem cell colony, and I think they did a really awesome job of it. It's really cool. Yep. Um, you can get them at – let me get the link. You can get them at stemcellpodcast.com backslash t-shirt. Um, or is it T-shirts? Hold on, let me double check. Let me look. You know, I can't. Stem, what is it? Tem, stem cell bo- stem cell podcast dot com backslash T-shirts with Plural. an S. Okay, nice, nice. And that's, T-shirts. Yeah, check it out. Nice, man. I can't wait to like play basketball or whatever squash with that shirt on. I'll I'll know we have succeeded when I see somebody playing sports with one of those on. Nice, nice. Yeah. So stemcellpodcast.com backslash t-shirts. Go check it out. Um, I will be in New York City tomorrow, Yost Dog. We're going to hang out. Um, I'm going down for the New York Stem Cell Foundation conference. So to, we're taping this on a Tuesday the 21st. Uh, Wednesday the 22nd is the conference. So on the next show, I'll, uh, I'll give everyone a little, you know, little update on what I heard there. So 
we're gonna Yosef and I are gonna hang out, play a little shuffleboard out at the bar. What do you think? Down yeah, the, in, uh, the indoor shuffleboard, not the oh, indoor. The, yeah, not not, not, not like the cruise the ship. Sixty-five year old shuffleboard. Yeah, not the cruise ship version. Uh, the the bar version. So uh, so we'll we'll get into the bar and play. What else we got here? So let's see. We are the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for following us at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter on Facebook. Uh, we are the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Uh, go check them out, isscr.org, and go register for their um, their uh, satellite conference there in Singapore. Um, you can go check that out. We talked about it last show. Uh, I think the, uh, the registration is obviously still ongoing, so go go take a trip and see some really great talks. Check out what they got to offer at their website. Um, and Facebook, we're everywhere, man. Just everybody, just grab a hold of us, and we'll take you for a ride, right? Yeah, we've been getting a lot of new likes on the Facebook page. So a lot uh, of new likes. Uh, we're uh, on our way up, and uh, I think uh, we're just going to continue to do some things. So I think I think we can move on. Let me see here. Do we have any other business? Um, no, I think that's it. So we can move on to the. Uh, the science, science roundup, roundup right? Yeah. Well, I was about to say the stem cell roundup, but yeah. we do both here. The science roundup uh, and the science roundup of the show uh, brought to you by Thermo Fisher. And they have their conference, 24 hours of stem cells that Yosef and I, uh, I just did my talk and I recorded it. So it's all set. Uh, did, that's November 6th. Did, did you do you, it, Yos? You know, I was doing it before we started recording. I've got about half my slides recorded, but I want to redo it with a microphone. I don't like the way the sound quality yeah, is. Yeah, I know. But. It's a little bit weird. Uh, so for everyone, like we have to like do a presentation and then talk into a phone to record our voice over the slides, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I've never yeah, really done I'm, that before. I'm going to call in with Skype just because you know how Skype phone calls. I'm not I'm not sure why a phone phone call sounds like a phone phone call, whereas a Skype sounds like a you know a microphone, like you're you know in the room yeah, with the yeah, person. Yeah, it's just it's, not not as good. Yeah, it doesn't have that. But but anyway, sound. everyone, uh, go register. Go to stemcellpodcast.com. Click on the banner. You'll see it. Twenty four hours of stem cells and register for the. Uh, uh, for that online virtual conference, it's a pretty cool. Uh, it'll be a pretty cool event. I'm excited for it. All right, yo, so let's kick off the roundup, man. All right, there was a science paper showing that mice lacking myelin-forming cells were less able to learn a new motor skill involving running on a wheel with unevenly spaced bars. So you can find that over in Science. Interesting. Th- yeah, there was a geophysical research letters study where they uh, used high-resolution satellite images to create a database of all lakes uh, with a surface area that is greater than 2,000 square meters. How many do you think there are on the planet? Wild guest. Oh, man. This is like the bubble. You know, how many jelly beans are in that jar? How, oh, how, man. How many- I'm going to sound so stupid. Uh, how many? What's the size? Uh, 2,000 square meters or above. Uh, a million? Uh, that's a good guess. I would have guessed lower. <laughs> they conclude that there are 117 million lakes covering three what? point. Yeah, I know. Mind blowing. 3.7% of Earth's land area not covered by ice. So a lot of lakes out there. So, uh, I, you know what? That makes me, 
You know, people are like, oh, I live, I have a house, you know, and it's on a lake. I don't really, they don't feel so special to me because there's yeah. so many lakes. There's only 117 million yeah, other ones. Um, so there's a cell transplantation study. I actually heard this on the BBC this morning uh, where they used olfactory and sheathing yeah, cells. Yeah, I was going to talk about this. Did you see oh. this? Oh, well, I'll leave that to you then. But uh, Go ahead. I mean, if you want to, you can go. Well, apparently they uh, before the treatment, he was paralyzed from, I believe, the waist down uh, for nearly two years and had shown no signs of recovery despite many months of intensive physiotherapy. So they took cells from his olfactory bulb, one side of his olfactory bulb, and uh, basically cultured them and then transplanted them at the contusion site using four strips of nerve tissue taken from the patient's ankle and placed across an eight millimeter gap on the left side of the cord. And they did a hundred micro injections of these OECs or olfactory factory and th- sheathing cells and uh right now even though it's an n of one he's uh showing signs of being able to walk again so uh that's encouraging um but again this is an n of one so um and it's not clear to me what those cells are doing i I've yeah seen- i know you know what let's yeah let me let, i'll get to that in a minute let's uh let me get to that otherwise i'm gonna run out of stuff to talk about because <laughs> i saw that and I, 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 I'll tell you about it. Go ahead. All right. I'll so there was an American Journal of Public Health finding that sugary drinks can shorten your telomeres. You know, those oh, like... Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Long telomeres are good for like staying, you know, healthy and old, getting old. And um, shorter telomeres are bad. They're kind of like the... What do you... They, they call them like the, the caps on the yeah, tips the of your shoelaces. They're like that for, that for DNA. So... um. Don't drink too much of those again. I think I railed against it last podcast. So um, uh, moving on, there was a New England Journal of Medicine study showing that gene therapy can be uh, used for the bubble boy syndrome. You know, the skid Mm -hmm. uh, humans, uh, severe uh, combined immunodeficiency. Uh, They used a viral vector containing a corrected version of the mutated gene and nine boys were treated. Eight of them survived during the one to three year follow-up while one died of an infection that predated the treatment. They found that the virus did not insert itself into cancer uh, causing genes like in that first trial that basically shut down all the bubble boy experiments and uh so that's good news for uh, moving forward for gene therapy Bubble boy. I remember that Seinfeld. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, there was a J Neuro uh, showing in a cocaine relapse model. They found that overexpressing Kreb in uh, 10% of neurons in the mouse lateral amygdala made these neurons more likely to be activated in a chamber associated with cocaine administration, suggesting that these neurons help form contextual memory. Now, when they silenced Kreb in the overexpressing neurons just before testing, this reduced the condition uh, preference and place preference and for uh, the cocaine-associated chamber, altogether suggesting that context cocaine association is stored in a subset of lateral amygdala neurons that exhibit Hmm. high Kreb expression. So uh, I wonder, do you? You probably don't know anything about it. I would love to know what the co- what what is a cocaine relapse model? Uh, yeah, like, what do they do to these? Animals? I think it's like a lever that administers it in their water, but I, I'm not sure. I doubt they're like you know rolling out lines the, with dollar like, like, bills. Like, 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 no, 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 that I know. 
<laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, I, I, what I guess what I was going with that is they're, they, they use Coke. They, they put the Coke in the animals for a long time. Then they make them withdraw, and then they all of a sudden introduce it back. That's the relapse. Yeah, I'm wondering I think how so. They I'm not sure. I, yeah, and I think it's, it's on one side of the chamber, but I'm not sure how, how that works out. Uh, anyway. Uh, there was a peanut. What's our favorite journal? Penis. Yes, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study showing that in mice, there are differences in the molecular makeup of and in plasticity at CA3, CA1 pyramidal neuron synapses, uh, depending on whether this presynaptic input comes from the left or right CA3. So th- we're deep within the hip- hippocampus now, uh, the memory forming area of the brain, and the authors showed optogenetically uh, they were able to silence either the left or right CA3 in the hippocampus. And that silencing on the left side, but not the right side of CA3, impaired long-term spatial memory, suggesting the existence of functional asymmetry between the left and right CA3 in wow, mice. that's yeah, very cool. So you can find that in PNAS. I thought that was Good old PNAS. Yep. There was a nature study looking at epigenetic mechanisms, or, uh, or more specifically, histone variant exchange, where histone variants are incorporated into the nucleosome. So apparently this has a role in memory consolidation. They found that fear conditioning induces changes in levels of H2A.Z. So this is a variant of the H2A histone in uh, the nucleosomes of memory-related genes. And that depletion of this H2A.Z variant uh, in the hippocampus and cortex um, basically uh, reduces early and late stages of memory consolidation, uh, respectively. So uh, you can find that in nature. Um, I have a number for you. 46%. This is the growth from... 1995 to 2013 in the number of most cited papers in pub, uh, published in low-tier journals, according to Google, Google Scholar metrics. So that's good news. So there's been a rise in huh. you know highly cited papers in not the top five, top ten journals. Well, that's you know. good to hear, I guess. Yeah, spreading right. Spreading I mean, the getting love. some recognition for those that are not in the big name. Yep, I, I thought you'd be interested in that. That's nice. There was a JAMA internal medicine review. JAMA, 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 showing that uh, Parkinson's disease drugs uh, may well drugs that they use to treat Parkinson's disease and other things like restless leg syndrome may raise the risk of impulse control disorders like compulsive gambling, shopping, and hypersexuality. So they reviewed decades of FDA data. Now I've heard of like cases like this where like somebody had uh, Parkinson's, they started taking the drugs and just like gambled away all their money. Um, this, oh yeah, God, really? Yeah. So this was like a more thorough in depth uh, study because these are dopamine receptor agonists and, you know, addiction is a big dopamine, uh, you know, reward yep. system. So uh, they basically looked at um, the data over uh, decades of FDA data and uh, basically, it mostly affected males, and nearly half of the incidents were linked directly to the use of any of six different dopamine receptor agonists. Altogether, nearly 10% of patients had these issues, and they think there's a lot of underreporting going on here, so it's probably a conservative estimate. 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, there was a cell metabolism study showing that supplementing the diet with omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids has beneficial effects on heart health, lowering LDL or the bad cholesterol and raising the good cholesterol, the high-density uh, uh, lipo protein. So they also found that aspirin assists in preventing heart attacks by promoting lipoxin production. This is an anti-inflammatory protein that then promotes the transport of excess cholesterol to the liver where it is excreted through bile and mice. They also identified a gene called ALOX5, uh, which encodes for an enzyme that generates lipoxins from omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids. So that's in cell metabolism. Cool. Yeah, there was a current biology study. This was interesting, showing that in the male, nema- you know how there's uh, male worms or nematodes and hermaphrodites? Uh, so the male nematode brain will suppress the ability to locate food in order to focus on finding a mate. And they, they identified a single pair of neurons called AWA or AWA that control smell. Uh, and this differs in males versus hermaphrodites. And it was a chemo receptor called ODR10 is more highly expressed in the hermaphrodites and thus they were more sensitive to food. So the females or hermaphrodites were more sensitive to food, whereas the male brain can uh, suppress this food uh, location in order to find a mate. So when they overexpressed this receptor in males, it led them to act more like women or hermaphrodites and stay at the food store instead of looking for a mate. Wow, that's crazy. And vice versa when they knocked it down in hermaphrodites. Suppressing your ability to eat just to find a woman. Yes, basically. So uh, you could find that over in current biology and uh, i'll just do a couple more because we're running low on time there's an advanced materials study uh describing an ultra fast charging battery that can be 70 percent charged within just two minutes it can have up to ten thousand charges versus the 500 charges with current lithium ion batteries the trick that they used was to use titanium dioxide which is uh Uh in yeah sunblock lotions and also found in the soil as an anode or negative Uh pole so that's what i would have done yeah right they transformed material into tiny nanotubes to speed up the chemical reaction so hopefully we'll see that come online soon and i will just end on a cell paper introducing the first cas9 mouse so the crispr idealized CRISPR mouse that will have its own Cas9 that will allow researchers only to inject guide RNA, which pilots the Cas9 to the target gene uh, sequence in order to alter virtually any part of the mouse genome. So they use this mouse to mutate uh, genes called CRAS, P53, and IKB1 to create uh, a model of lung adenocarcinomas. But this mouse is already online. It's available from Jackson Labs. So if wow, you want that's, that, that'll be cool. Yeah, you want that CRISPR mouse? They got get it, that so. CRISPR mouse. Yeah. So I'll end there because uh, we want to. We want to end on time today. All right. So yeah, I know. Um, yeah. All right. Let me move to the, some stem cell stuff. Uh, so this I found in a it's in a nature blog. Uh, I was in the let's see it was in a nature blog. Did you know? So this is called stem cell fraud makes for box office success. Did you know that in uh, South Korea there's a movie based on the Wu Suk Wang scandal? No, I would love uh, to see that. It's like it's like it's like they said it's drew more than a hundred thousand viewers on opening day. They say it's been topping the box sales office in in South Korea. It's called I swear it's called the whistleblower. 
The movie's really? called The Whistleblower, and it shines a sympathetic light on Wu Quang, the professor in 2004 and 2005, who claimed to have created stem cell lines from cloned human embryos. Um, of course, this is one of the most, the biggest, most known scandals in, in scientific, I mean, I don't know, it's not scientific history, but definitely in the stem cell world. Um, and he's made like this incredible comeback, right? Yo, he's like went through all this crap and then made a comeback and has been publishing at an incredible rate, uh, lately and doing a lot of things. Um, let's see here. Um, so it says, the achievement would have provided means to make genetically identical to, you know, to make cells genetically identical to the patient's own. Basically, it would have been like an IPS alternative, right? But hopes were shattered when Huang's claims turned out to be based on fraudulent data and unethical procurement of eggs. And there was this, apparently there was this uh, person in his lab uh, whose name was Yunjun Ryu who was the actual whistleblower, who was the, the, the person that kind of started speaking uh, to a journalist or, or uh, uh, you know, let the stuff out. And the story, the movie, is based on him, that, uh, and Wang, and the whole thing. I would love to see that too, Yos. So, um, yeah, you know, I always say the guy did not clone man, but he cloned man's best friend. Yeah, he cloned man's best friend. <laughs> and he, exactly uh, right. He's very talented. And, you know, he did create the first human parthenogenic line. Um, so sure, there's that. <laughs> there's that. Yeah, but it's a movie, and people are going to see it. Uh, so... Uh, maybe we can get our hands on it and check it out. Um, I saw uh, this last last episode. We talked about the paper by Doug Melton's group describing that really cool study where they generated pancreatic islets from human embryonic stem cells. Yeah, I was reading and about that. It got like press everywhere, and yeah. it got press um, to the point where people were calling saying that diabetes has been cured. And so I read this on uh, Knopfler's blog, ipsl.com. Uh, he wrote a he wrote a little blog called "Stem Cells for Diabetes: The Danger of the Word Cure." Yeah, and he yeah. talked about how like you know people have been really overusing that word "cure," and in, in, he he puts it in response to this story. I think it happens with a lot of stories um, that we should just kind of chill out here. No one cured diabetes; this was clearly a breakthrough. Uh, but the yeah. use of the word "cure" should be something that's just very carefully placed. Uh, Apparently, the surgery, seen, right? We got to be careful about. Is, false hope. Isn't the surgery? There's like a lot of complications with uh, the you know the immune system. It's an autoimmune disease. Yeah, it's an uh, autoimmune disease. One. So are they going to break down their body's own cells? Yeah, it, like you know, like are, how are they going to get them in? They got to put it in a device, hydrogels, uh, and all this stuff. Yeah, you know, there's a lot still to go, and so calling it a cure uh, is a bit much. So um, I thought that was a um, you know fair by Paul to write about and. Uh, Sometimes people get caught up on this, and, and and we should. I mean, we should definitely. It's a. It was a, the coolest part about that study was that the cells are able to respond to sugar. Yeah, like, that's crazy to yeah. me that they can sense it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a. That's the breakthrough. Yeah. But a cure to type one diabetes, uh, I would just. I would want to chill back on that. So, okay. So I. Um. There was a. There was this op-ed in the Times called. Uh, and we bring this up with Vahara Varmus, so we'll we'll get to this a little more in depth, but. It was called the young, the young, brilliant, and underfunded, and it was by Andy Harris. Who, when I was reading it, I just thought it was a. He's a physic. He was a. He was a. He is a physician, and he was a researcher. And now he's a. He's a. He's a. He's a Republican in Congress. Hmm. Um, he's a Republican representative from Maryland. Okay, he's a representative, and he's writing. He wrote this piece highlighting the fact that. Um, back in the day, 
you know, he, he basically was saying that the youth is the people that typically make the big discoveries, right? And he said that the most common and sought-after form of NIH funding, the R01, the average age of receiving that is a 40, is 42. Meanwhile, um, you know, was saying basically by the time researchers, investigators get that big award, they're kind of past their prime. It's like the equivalent of like a starting pitcher getting his first big league start at like 30. I agree. Like, you know, he, he misses his prime. Okay, so this is analogy. what he's writing about. And he's saying that we need to do something about it. This is what happened. Then I was reading that uh, this same man, this is in a separate article, this is in Science, uh, basically has a plan to make NIH grantees younger, and he introduced this bill uh, into Congress that would basically kind of force NIH not to take money out of the budget, but to take adi- some additional surplus funds that are coming from some sort of initiative and put that to specifically fund these young investigators, right? So it sounds all well and good. Then I started thinking about it, and I'm thinking, like, I don't know. I don't really know if this is the problem, Yosef, because think about this. People are being trained longer, right? People stay in PhD programs longer, and they're staying in postdocs longer. Therefore, they're not getting their investigatorships until they're a little bit older, Okay, and then an R01 is a big project that's for for established projects. You have to have a lot of preliminary data, and as a young investigator, you tend not to. It takes you some time to build up that data, Hmm. right? So I can understand it being out to 40, but what about increasing the amount of grants and and awards for transitioning scientists, you know, people like just starting their lab? K99. Yeah, K99 transitional grants. It's It's almost like they're expecting you to... It's like a, use the same analogy, right? When you get to the major leagues, you don't go right into the major leagues. You got to go in the minors for a while and play. You got to prove yourself. So why don't we fund a lot more minor leaguers out there? Get some more money in there, help them build up, and then give them the grant. Then give them the uh, start in the majors. Just a so, side note: Derek Jeter used to cry every night when he was in the minors. You see that? Yeah. I mean, no one's saying it's it's easy in the minors, but I mean, you got to start somewhere. So yeah. anyway, I don't know where. I I, I definitely think. Younger people need to have more money. How we get it to them, mandating Congress to do anything just sounds a little shady. All right, let's see here. My next story, so I'm going to move through this quick since you already talked about it, but this is the paralyzed guy who uh, was able to walk again after nose cells were implanted. The thing is, Yos, I don't, they're not stem cells. I mean, I don't know what they are. I mean, they're getting almost attachment to stem cells, but like, there's no evidence to suggest that there's stem cells there. Uh, What what are these in sheathing cells? Do they produce myelin? Or no, just I, I, it's not really clear. I can't find the primary article. I have to read it. There's a lot of dopamine neurons produced in the olfactory. Yeah, there's a lot of everything know, just like, secreting stuff. But it's, yeah. it's not clear that there's stem cells anyway. We'll see. It's an N of one, and it's been three months. So I'm not like trying to like throw cold water on it, but let's. It's really cool and exciting, and that's tremendous for that patient. But let's 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 settle down. Uh, I, I saw this article, like you know, the pro-lifers came out to this, and this guy uh, Wesley Smith wrote an article paralyzed walk without embryonic stem cells and he wrote embryonic stem cells are the only hope remember question mark please do because it was always a lie and the embryonic hypers knew it oh and so he goes on to talk about how they've cured paralysis without embryonic stem cells uh listen wes you gotta calm down (laughs) no one no one got cured there all right let's uh, settle down uh, I'm real happy for everyone involved in that study, but let's 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 settle down here. It's N of one, and uh, uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, there was a there was a published paper in the Lancet uh, looking at the ACT trial for macular degeneration from human embryonic stem cells. Um, 
They looked at the data uh, results of the three-year study, a safety study, and the conclusion basically that this product seemed to be safe. Uh, they put these in nine patients, these um, uh, human ES-derived RPE, and uh, deemed that they were safe. So this was really the first uh, conclusion from their clinical trial, and now they'll probably continue that and go on to efficacy. So that's cool. You can find that in the Lancet. There was this uh, stem cells generated uh, human intestines grown in lab mouse mice. Did you see this? This was in Nature Medicine. Researchers have successfully transplanted functioning human intestinal tissue grown from stem cells into mice. And they say that this breakthrough could revolutionize the production of spare organs for people using cells from their own bodies. Um, they say these specks of intestine were grafted onto the mice's kidneys. With the necessary blood supply, these were able to balloon from a single stem cell to a thumb-sized glob, and they were able to perform many functions integral for digesting foodstuffs and, and absorbing nutrients. Pretty cool. That's in Nature Medicine. Nice. Uh, this is at a Mervyn Yoder's lab, differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells to um, cells similar to cord blood endothelial colony-forming cells. So basically... Um, these cells, I guess, are, let's see, enable the derivation of clinically relevant numbers of highly proliferative uh, blood vessel forming cells. So they think that this population of cells, they'll be able to make actual vasculature and vessels. And you can imagine what kind of impact that would have if we were able to recreate, have a source of uh, vasculature that we can make vessels. That's Interestingly, pretty awesome. that's like what Ebola attacks is the vasculature. There you go. There you Timely. go. Yep. Uh, they could probably go after a big grant right now from the government. Then, all right, let's see. Uh, where am I? Okay, this was that was in cell stem cell. Nice. Uh, the next paper, or no, I'm sorry, was that in cell stem cell? Um, that was in Nature Biotech. This is in cell stem cell. MSC regulated microRNAs converge on the transcription factor FOXP2 and promote breast cancer metast- metastasis. So here they show so mscs are progenitor cells they participate in the breast tumor stroma formation and, and they're very and, and they you know promote metastasis um and so they show that mscs cause aberrant expression of microRNAs, uh which provide these breast cancer cells uh with enhanced cancer stem cell like properties so it basically confers a stem cell like property onto these cells and then it causes them to go all tumorigenic and wild and medicine like metastasize and they narrowed it they got it down to this one microRNA 199A that regulates mm. this transcription factor called FOXP2 Oh um, FOXP2 so that was pretty interesting. what's FOXP2 doing there I don't know FOXP2 is like everywhere right I know right it's the language gene and now it's this uh, metastasis Interesting. Yeah, so then the last thing I'll end at is that there was a UC, the UC San Diego Health System announced Monday the human testing of injected neural stem cell therapies are underway at the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center. So uh, researchers are conducting three different trials, one on a 26-year-old woman paralyzed after a traffic crash and others on diabetes and leukemia patients. Uh, they're working with this Maryland-based neural, stel, neural stem incorporated and with their product or neural stem cells, it's I don't. It's not clear though that they're using these cells for for all those things: uh, car crash, paraly- like paralysis, diabetes, and leukemia. I don't know. They're just kind of chucking these neural stem cells into all things here. If I'm reading this correctly, mm. uh, but anyway, they have three trials going on out there in the UC San Diego Health System. So um, I will I will stop there because uh, we want to get to uh, the guest. All right, thanks, Yos. We'll move on now to the uh, to the next segment. Okay, so this is uh, a real uh, honor to have 
Uh, our guest today on the podcast, Dr. Harold Varmus. Uh, Dr. Varmus is an American Nobel Prize winning scientist and, 14th, and the 14th and current director of the National Cancer Institute. He was uh, co-recipient along with Michael Bishop in 1989 for the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for discovery of the cellular origin of retroviral oncogenes. From 1993 to 99, he served as the director of the NIH, and as the NIH director, he was credited with nearly doubling the research agency's budget. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next 15 minutes for during the interview. And from 2000 to 2010, he was the president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, where Yosef is now and where I did my postdoc. And then in May, he was nominated to be the director of NCI and began his tenure there on July 12, 2010. So, Dr. Varmus, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. So can I just start with this? Because I have to ask you, because I've never asked this to anyone who's won the Nobel Prize. Can you tell me how, how, you're, how they let you know you've won the Nobel Prize? Is it a phone call? Is it, is it Everybody who asks that question is the most commonly commented on thing when a, when a prize is announced. People say, how did you find out? And, you know, it's not that. It's <laughs> not? They don't send like a bunch of people to your door or something like that as a phone call? Say so you've won the Nobel Prize? Yeah. And of course, I was living in California, so... Um, the time difference between Stockholm and San Francisco is pretty considerable. <laughs> so I received my call around, I don't know, 3 or 4 in the morning. So it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> you don't know whether you're dreaming or not. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's uh, pretty – so it is a common question you get. What happens? Very common. Okay. The only thing that's funny about it is that my, my uh, uh, co-recipient, Mike Bishop, uh, has a name that's, uh, that is more common than mine. So there was no trouble finding my phone number, but the Nobel Committee uh, found the wrong Michael Bishop initially and called uh, someone on the University of California, San Francisco faculty in the Department oh, of Psychiatry. No. Oh, also, to be named Michael oh no. Oh, saying, no. <laughs> saying, uh, call us immediately. Oh. Congratulations. And uh, then that poor when, man. When they found the, 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 that they had contacted the wrong person, they had to go oh back. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Well, it's funny now. I mean, yeah, my earlier message. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so should, let's start. Um, qu- I just want to start here. As a, someone who's running uh, his own lab as a new investigator, Yosef's a postdoc trying to transition, hopefully at some point. I get this question from my own grad students a lot. We get it from a lot of people on the show. These are young scientists. And the question is, is biomedical research a viable career choice going forward, given the landscape of everything. So can I, can I pose that question to you, and then we can get into some of the details? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's no yes or no sure. answer to that. But clearly, it's a more competitive atmosphere. It's harder to do um, what most people go to graduate school thinking they're going to do, namely run a laboratory in an outstanding academic institution. Um, there are more options for what to do with a biomedical research PhD. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, unemployment rates are very, very low among people who receive PhDs sure. or who have MDs and have, have research aspirations. But the number of people who enter graduate school and will ultimately be the principal investigator in an academic laboratory is quite low. It probably is in the range of uh, 1 in 10. Um, and Historically, that wasn't the case, historically correct? Historically, not the case. Um, number was considerably higher. But it's always been true that a large number of people end up going into industry or they leave graduate school or they stop during postdoctoral training and do something else. Uh, I would argue that uh, that life is long and that uh, if you 
field you want to have a career that's dependent on advanced knowledge in, 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 the, in the biological sciences, that it's good to enter graduate sure. school. Uh, if you end up dropping out or doing something else, that's fine too. Uh, I do think that, that people who take responsibility for training programs need to be sure that they are teaching people how to be good scientists and not saying you're a failure if you don't become sure. a principal investigator. Sure. But I see lots of uh, interesting careers that, that, and increasing number of, in, of interesting careers that depend upon knowing about science. Right. Uh, I think we need to rethink how we structure these labs. That uh, uh, the 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 coin of the realm should not be having a big lab, like a super lab. These armies, twenty or thirty trainees, uh, because you end up as an investigator getting too far from the bench, spending all your time writing grants, not thinking about science enough yourself, and also creating what is uh, for shorthand called the Malthusian problem. Yes. Simply growing the pop- population yeah. of uh, aspiring uh, principal investigators without paying attention to, uh, to uh, the dynamics of the workplace. So, uh, for example, uh, those of us who recently wrote an essay about this topic in... That, that was in uh, PNAS, yeah. right? Yeah, we read that. Um, that... Uh, that all of us feel that, that uh, increasing dependence on staff scientists as opposed to uh, earlier stage sure. trainees would help develop laboratories that, uh, that are more reasonable in structure and also very productive. Help take some of that administrative burden maybe off the uh, – or help well, with that with the PI think, or just expand a, it a bit. I think it's a way of, of building a relatively small, effective, efficient laboratory uh, that uh, um, de- decreases the demand – um, and the some, sometimes self-serving demand to have a lot of low-paid workers, graduate right. students, and postdocs doing doing the work right. and maintaining your publication. Sure, I mean, and that's the other thing. Postdocs are living in labs now for five, six years, uh, a and long sometimes, time. Sometimes and, two postdoctoral uh, traineeships because it's difficult to get jobs, and it, and they're not paid well. I mean, they're paid well, but they're not paid according to what their education might be. That's right. And so, I mean, that causes a problem as well in a lot of ways. And there's a there's a difficulty that's been created by having um, people be in a training position for a long period of time. Now, I think attitudes have shifted a bit. People feel, as a postdoc, I can do the best scientific work of my career because I won't, won't have the responsibility for raising money right. and teaching and doing administrative things. But those of us who grew up in a different era recognize that there was some advantage to being at least somewhat independent. I actually worked mainly in a, in a team situation, but I did feel in, in, I was certainly an independent intellect at that point uh, when at the age of 31 or 32, I was uh, on a, fa- a medical school faculty and, uh, and didn't, have, didn't have children at that point, um, uh, didn't feel the need to, uh, to do a lot of things in behalf of the, of the scientific community. Um, I spend every waking hour in the shower or out of the shower um, thinking about uh, the next experiment. Sure. And it's a very vital time in the life of a scientist and to wait until you're in your late 30s to get a job in your early 40s before you get your first grant. That's a mistake because uh, people may think that they have uh, still have an active intellect, as I do, at a yet more advanced age. Um, still, people who are you know, without prejudice uh, with, about uh, how science works and about how biological systems work, who are coming fresh to the problems, uh, are in the best position to make the truly breakthrough discoveries. Well, in, 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 
you know, no, no, I'm just, I'm just curious. uh, Consider in this topic, uh, two things: Uh, the idea of limiting the amount of PhDs that are given, as well as the idea of this. No one said that. Okay, I didn't say that. All right, has that been proposed uh, to 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 you know deal with this supply and demand? problem in I don't think you can deal with it that way. No one's going to legislate the number of PhDs that right. are going to be awarded. Uh, and that would be a mistake. I mm. think what we need to do is pay attention to the kinds of training programs that 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 uh, are out there and mm-hmm. and NIH I think should gradually uh, decrease the um, opportunity to support graduate students on grants. Right now there are at least right. three ways for graduate students to be supported other than parental money. <laughs> one is um, through a fellowship, one is through a training program, and the third is being paid on grants. On grants. And I think that's the third category that's quite problematic because a lot of institutions will have people with grants who will then um, uh, increase the, their laboratory groups by using their grant money to support graduate students. And I understand why it happens, and there is one very important reason why it happens, and that is that a lot of our students and postdocs are um, are not American citizens and they're not eligible yeah. for fellowships and training programs. I think that's something that that we ought to consider uh, talking to Congress about changing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, the other part to that is I find now you're getting a lot of PhD students that come into a program that just don't have the investigators who have money to take them. So, so here you have a, a pool of of of, of presumably qualified applicants, they got accepted into the program, not to their fault now, and now there's only three people with money, those labs are saturated, and the rest of them have nowhere to go, and it just becomes, so on all, it's kind of, you know, on a lot of sides. That's one of the ways in which a kind of market dynamic is going to influence the number of students that that are in the program, and it is irresponsible for students to be admitted to a program that can't afford to pay their their time in the laboratory. So that will be a self-correcting device um, because those schools will very, very, very quickly be known as uh, right. as uh, un, unwilling to, in a sense, pay their debts. Sure. So they they will become much less popular. So there 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 is a self correcting mechanism. So place. so that's that's at the graduate school level. For the postdocs, I'm I'm curious about this this new classification. I guess as as a senior scientist, is this the new option now uh, to be a just sort of a permanent postdoc? Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, I, I think the, the, the notion of developing s- staff scientist careers um, is, is an important one, but it's not the only way in which a PhD in, in uh, biological sciences can be used. There are many other career opportunities for people. And, you know, I don't know of a profession at this point, uh, teacher, financial advisor, yeah, uh, sure. entrepreneur, all uh, bioinformaticist, I mean, all these areas uh, benefit uh, from inclusion of people who have, have training in biological sciences. Number two, I don't think that it's fair to characterize um, a, a staff scientist, and I prefer that term to senior scientist, mm. uh, uh, to characterize a staff scientist as a As, a, as, as a like a super postdoc, postdoc or something. Postdoc. Right. No, in fact, um, I see at least two classes of staff scientists based on my own experience. One the people who run core facilities, mm-hmm. Sloan Kettering, for example, you, as you know, cores are a way of life. We like yeah. to say cores are a way of life, and and uh, all, all those cores are being run by people who are hired by the institution. They're serving as staff scientists. They're not. Sometimes they have grants, but very rarely. Usually, they're they're running a, a show that 
that provides both service functions and improves technologies and contributes to scientific projects. The second category is uh, the staff scientist who works as an independent scientist within a larger laboratory in which someone else takes responsibility for for raising the money and doing the administrative things and the hiring. Uh, and at NIH, we have many of those people. There are labs at the NIH that have four or five people, two of whom might be staff scientists, a couple of them might be students or postdocs, uh, one or two would be uh, uh, technicians who don't have advanced degrees. And that system works very well. And within the context of those laboratories, the staff scientist operates not as a postdoc, but as a semi-independent sure. scientist who's working with um, a, the equivalent of a faculty member, uh, someone who's on the tenure track. And, uh, and I think the, the opportunity to do science in that way is very satisfying. In fact, uh, satisfaction uh, assessments at the NIH suggest they are among the happiest people hmm. at the NIH. Really? That's interesting. Hmm. Well, I think um, I think the time is closing. We have to go soon. So before we do that, I would just uh, on on with your thoughts on on a resolution to some some of this, and in particular for the young investigators, people who have got that position, they're getting into a lab, mm-hmm. and now their job is really solely um, to get grants. I was reading a, there was an op-ed and then just well, you're jumping ahead a bit. I mean, I think that the the time for reflection on what it means to become a biological scientist needs to start. Um, probably at the, the last couple of years of undergraduate training, but certainly during a graduate well, career. Not, not when sure. you no, no, no. getting the faculty position is hard. And right, right, right. then you're on a track and you're probably going to... No, I know. Out. My thought was jumping because I want to I, I, I get to this there. because I got a lot of questions about it, and I know you're going to go. And, and I recently just read an article about it talking about how, um, you know, they were talking about young investigators and, and the how difficult it is to get... Uh, grants and they're saying that even if even if you double the NIH budget and put more money into the system, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that that money is going to go to young investigators or fix the problem. Uh, so well, I, I think that's uh, I think it's fair to say that that if if there is an increase in the NIH budget, the the problems for young investigators will diminish, but they won't go away. And what's more concerning is the idea that if there is another increase in the budget, that we, and we don't recognize the Malthusian dilemma sure. that we're in, hmm. that what's going to happen is that there'll be continued right. growth of the population. We won't solve the difficulty of getting our, our act in order so that we have a balanced community in which growth is commensurate with the expectation for continued appropriation of money from Congress. Is this recognized right now in Washington? Do you, I mean, I, I mean, the, in the, the problem is recognized. In fact, there is, there is, there is a, a bill that has just been introduced that, well, I think it's misguided from the point of view of uh, uh, of what can actually be be implemented. Um, it does recognize the fact that that uh, under under current circumstances, um, we are starting to fund people independently at an age that is older than we'd all like. I think you have to solve that problem not by saying NIH must reduce sure. the age at which people first start getting their grants. You've got to do it by looking at the entire system, and I agree with the point you were moving towards, that it's difficult to change a complex system like ours all at once because there's so many sure. drivers of, of our current behavior. We need to look and see in the way we advance, how we develop careers, how we mentor people to get into the right track. I think graduate schools can have more off-ramps. A lot of people could be getting master's degrees, right. and once they recognize that they're probably going to have a hard time, as independent investigators, we have to learn as mentors to tell people, you know, I think I see a very good career path for you. 
it's not being an independent. I, to- I agree. I agree so much with that because it's as an, and as someone who's in, it's a very difficult conversation to have. But as your me- as a mentor, that should be part of your job. Well, we're making life difficult for everybody. It's not just di- difficult for those who are unlikely to succeed. Even those likely to succeed are entering a world that is so competitive right now that there's no guarantee that even as an excellent person, you're going to make it. And that's a bad situation yeah. to be in because then the whole enterprise, which is glorious. I mean, it's you know, being having the, the opportunity to try to push back on the frontiers of knowledge and benefit uh, uh, health um, is, uh, is a remarkable opportunity. But uh, I'm fearful that uh, that the that the experience of doing of entering that that uh, world uh, is does not have the qualities that it had 30 or 40 years ago. Just, just real quick uh, before you leave, I have to ask you something timely in the news, which is this Ebola outbreak uh, in Africa. <laughs> no, I'm not going to comment on that. You know, time is limited, and uh, <laughs> others are, are answering those questions. Okay. Give Dr. Fauci a call. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll it, try. Thank it, you so it, much. Anthony I appreciate Fauci, the time. Thanks. Thank you. Wow, so there it is, Harold Barnes. There it is. There's the first uh, Nobel Prize winning scientist on the uh, Stem Cell Podcast. Yeah, it was a good interview. I'm, I'm glad you two uh, hashed out the uh, discussion about, you know, how to train PIs. And, uh, you know, uh, we cleared up, he cleared up the fact that he was not calling for reducing the amount of PhDs. Because I feel like some people read it like, like that's that. I feel like that's what it read like, Yosef. I, I yeah. Clearly, you know what I noticed when he responded to you? It sounded like he got that a lot. He yeah. must have gotten some a uh, lot of misconceptions from what he wrote. Yeah, because he sounded like you know that's not what I said. You know, yeah. I feel like uh, he maybe got that. So yeah, that's good because I, I remember the episode we did that with Dieter, and Dieter was like, "Absolutely not, we should never do that." You know, and I remember a lot of people thinking that. So it was good to get yeah. that cleared up. Yeah, and he didn't uh, want to address the Ebola stuff. Nah, with, he didn't want to do Ebola, <laughs> which I can't blame him because uh, look at the CDC chief; he's in hot water and. Now there's an Ebola czar, so hopefully he'll be able to speak to the issue better because there are a lot of people calling for a travel ban, and uh, apparently that's not what should be done uh, for planes coming from Western Africa to America because it's sort of like, you know, one of those things where you do the counterintuitive, like they say when you're hydroplaning on a curve, you're supposed to like turn into the curve, which is counterintuitive to get traction again like that's sort of like what the cdc is recommending by you know if you uh, limit the flights coming in and out uh basically that it spreads more and we can't contact trace as well people go underground and we you know it, it expands the amount of people who have the infection in west africa so um just I, I beg everybody to listen to the PhDs, the people with epidemiology PhDs, and just do nothing but study this for all their life. It's like the global warming thing. Just listen to these scientists. They, 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 know, they know a lot more than you and I, and the counterintuitive thing to do is, is probably uh, correct if they say that this is how it will you know, help control the infection. So um, it's really scary out there, though. I, I won't lie. It's, it's like the closest thing I could think think of a, as a, like a zombie disease it's, i know it's, it's bad news <laughs> i you know, just had a feeling though when a you know, people are naive to think that like a bullet doesn't isn't wasn't happening all the time in africa it just got out of control you know and then i had you know once it got out of control and started to get spiral you had to be really if you didn't think that wasn't coming here you're crazy i mean yeah i could see that a mile away now it's here and, uh, you know, it's not as bad as they're making it sound. That's obvious. They just got their next thing to run with. 
Um, so I, I don't know, but it made sense why Dr. Varmus wouldn't want to comment on that. You know, he's, he is for all intents and purposes in the political world, you know, I mean, he is definitely, uh, sitting there, so he probably didn't really want to comment on yeah, that. Yeah, but there's of, politics, the politics in every career. Yeah. You know? Even the gender pol- has politics at work. So, you know, so we're going to do a little rant before we go out of here. Remember guys, you, if you haven't, I know you all have ideas for rants, send them to us at stem cell podcast, uh, at gmail.com or uh, tweet us your, your rants. So, um, let's do it, Yost. What do you want to, uh, let's rant something yeah, today. So I, pr- I proposed this one to Chris earlier and, uh, I'm glad he, he, he related. So you ever looking, you know, uh, either, you know, in a, in a journal, you want to s- see the reference of a paper or even in an email, you get the email for the table of contents. And instead of seeing the last author on the paper, you always see at all. And you just want to know which lab did this paper come out of because you don't recognize the first and definitely not the middle authors. And it's always et al at the end. And you just want to know which lab it came out of. I feel like the et al should be in the middle and then the final author, you know, so you know which lab the work came out of. You know, it's Uh, it's, so annoying. It's it's really, really frustrating. And you know what else they're doing it too? A lot of times it's an accepted bibliography now. Like, so like in EndNote, when you do a bibliography, a lot of them will cut it off. Like they'll just do like at all. So when you print it and you read, that's worse. When you have it on paper, you can't click on it to reveal the rest of the authors. Mm. You know, like when it's on paper, it's static. It's just at all. Yeah. So then you have to like go on the computer, re-Google it, find it's annoying. <laughs> like if they're going to at all, sorry, everyone in the middle, but at all the middle authors. Yeah. You know, like, give me the first, give me the last. That gives me the credit due for the people that did it or that conceived it. The the credit of the lab where it's been done. And, you know, the, if you're going to add all, add all the middle. I mean, yeah, the, so, I don't know what to so say. So for sign, uh, non-scientists listening to the show, the way a paper that, you know, a huge body of work, the first authors, like the, the, the person who wrote the manuscript did most of the work. And then the last author is the guy whose lab it came out of, or girl, you know, woman. Yeah, and typically who, paid it, paid for it. A yeah, lot of the time. yeah, and is the advisor or you know the 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 person who got the funds for the actual project and did the mentorship. So the the most important part for any study is it's like who it's Tom Brady and who does he play for? You know, it's like it, not no. Okay, you know he's Tom Brady, but you don't know which team he plays for. It's it's stupid. It's just you know we. This is what we as scientists want to know: whose lab did it come out of, and who's the first person on this paper? And uh, typically, you don't get the last author, which is like the most important part half the time. So. Yeah, I know. I don't understand why. I understand. So everyone for everyone, then they do this thing called et al, which is really just you know another way of saying and others. So yeah. it's like Latin for and others. So to shorten it, like when we reference it, we'll, you know, we'll do like Gannat et al. So Yosef and others. And that's how you cite the paper. And typically the format at all is done within within the body of a paper that's referencing. So if I'm referencing Yosef's work, I would say this has previously been shown by uh, Gannat et al. Yeah. And then that's what it would be. But in the bibliography, then the entire author list is typically then listen, you know, Yosef, all his other authors, and then it would be now, let's say, like Lorenz would be last, right? Yeah. But what they're doing is they're chopping that and doing at all yeah. at the middle and letting the other authors not get noticed. And what Yosef's saying is the last author is gone. So we're just like, all right, what lab did this come out of? You know, who, where did this go? And you have to actually go back and find it. 
and it's really annoying. Yeah, um, especially like, like the the table of contents. I get like an email. I'm like, oh, look at this fresh hot paper, and I have no idea which lab it came out of, and unless you know MSK has a subscription to that journal, and I have to you know click on the link to find out. I just want to know which lab it came out of. Is it came out of the lab of et al. Et al. <laughs> yeah, that that lab is publishing like a beast. Yeah, et al. is all over the place <laughs> yeah. publishing like an animal. Yeah, man, I feel you. I feel like this is a very scientific rant. So I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that can uh, understand that. And I didn't realize that they were doing that within bibliographies now. So when you print it, uh, it's just static there at all. So there's really no way to find it. You have to just go now and refine the paper. So yeah, just well, another way they're trying to make our lives more more frustrating. And annoying. <laughs> I know. It's a, definitely a high-cost problem or first-world problem. But, yeah, but isn't most of our rants, I feel like? Yeah, we, pretty we, much. We ranted about the size of the new iPhone the other day. I mean, come on. Which, by the way, you know you know it's bad when – so uh, Mark Tomashima, who's listening to this, I know, uh, came up to visit, and he was hanging out, and he we were ranting about the iPhone. Even he's not happy with the new iPhone. I mean, if Mark's anti uh, – if Mark's not happy with the new iPhone, uh, we, we, oh, we got issues. Yeah, I agree. So, we ranted on something correct if he, uh, if he agrees, so – uh, he's a long-time Apple subscriber, and uh, yeah, if he's if if they lost him, they 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 definitely did something wrong. So I I just think that the the small version should have been the big version. <laughs> but other than that, it's a, it's a great phone. And uh, oh right, oh right, um, first world problems. We're yeah, first world problems. All right, man. So listen, I'm gonna catch you tomorrow down at the conference. We're uh, we'll uh, shuffleboard it out with the crew and uh, everyone out there in Stem Cell Podcast Land. We'll uh, see you on 31. All right, take care, All right, brother man. I'll see talk you. to you soon.